listening to the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast. I'm Father Edward Looney, and throughout the year, I am reading from the Mystical City of God by Venerable Maria Vagreda, a four-volume, 2,500-page work. I also have been very moved by the people who are commenting in the Facebook group, The Mystical City of God in a Year podcast, as you share how each day's readings have touched you and as you converse back and forth between different readers and listeners as well. You can find that group over at Facebook. Today is day 32, and we continue reading from Book 1, Chapter 17, and today we'll be reading paragraphs 252 to 257. He continues saying that she came prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. For the day of the espousal, it is customary among mortals to procure the most precious adornments and presents obtainable for adorning at the terrestrial bride, and the most precious jewels will even be borrowed in order that nothing may be wanting to the array befitting her state and condition. Therefore, if we admit, as we are indeed forced to admit, that the most pure Mary was the spouse of the Blessed Trinity and mother of the second person, that she was adorned and prepared for these dignities by the omnipotent God, who is infinite and rich without measure or limit. What adornments, what preservation, what jewels must those be with which he fitted her out in order that she might be a worthy spouse and mother? Would he reserve any of his jewels in his treasury? Would he withhold any grace that could beautify and make her precious? Would he permit her to be deformed, ill-favored, blemished in any way, or for the least instant? Would he be sparing with his mother and spouse when he so prodigiously lavishes the treasures of the divinity upon other souls who in comparison with her are less than servants and slaves of his house? Let all confess with the Lord himself that she alone is the chosen one, Canticle 6.8, and the perfect one, whom the rest must recognize, proclaim, and magnify as the immaculate and most happy among women, of whom in wonder and with joyful praise they ask, Who is she that comes forth like the morning, beautiful as the moon? Canticle 6.9 And terrible as the serried armies. This is the Most Holy Mary, the one spouse and mother of the Almighty, who descends to the world adorned and prepared as the bride of the Blessed Trinity for her spouse and her son. This coming and entrance was made memorable by such great gifts of the divinity that the splendor of them made her more agreeable than the sunrise, more beautiful than the moon, more exquisite and admirable than the sun, and without equal among things created, she came more valiant and powerful than the heavenly hosts of saints and angels. She descended, adorned, and prepared by God, who gave her all that he desired and who desired to give her all that he could. And who could give all that is not the essentially divine, namely, all that is most approximate to the divinity and farthest removed from any blemish of a creature? Entire and most perfect was this adornment, so that all defect was excluded, which would not have been the case, if in any regard she failed in grace and innocence. Without this, the treasures of grace would not suffice to make her so beautiful, since they would adorn but a distorted visage, a natural infected with sin, or a garment spoiled and besmirched by guilt. Forever there would have been a stain, a shadow, and blot of guilt, with no diligence on her part could obliterate, 
All this was unbefitting the mother and spouse of God, and if it was unbefitting her, it was also unbefitting himself, for he would have failed to adorn and prepare her with the love of a spouse or the solicitude of a son, if, having in his possession most rich and precious vestments, he would have clothed his mother and spouse and himself in soiled and worn garments. It is verily time that the honor due to our great queen should be unveiled and made clear to human insight, and that whatever was misled by opposite opinions should hesitate and cease to belittle and deny her the adornments of her immaculate purity at the instant of her heavenly conception. Compelled by the force of truth and by the light in which I see these ineffable mysteries, I proclaim over and over again that as far as revealed to me the privileges, graces, prerogatives, favors, and gifts of Most Holy Mary, not excluding even that of her being the Mother of God, all depended upon having their origin and are founded upon the fact that she was immaculate and full of grace in the moment of her most pure conception. Hence, all of them would appear ill-proportioned and deficient without this favor like a sumptuous edifice, without a solid and well-built foundation. All depend and are founded in a certain way upon the purity and innocence of her conception. And on this account it was necessary to refer so often in the course of this history to this mystery, especially when treating of the divine decree, the formation of Most Holy Mary, and the incarnation of her Most Holy Son. I will not enlarge on this. But I will give notice to all that the Queen of Heaven so esteems the beauty and adornment given to her by her son and spouse in her purest conception, that she will be correspondingly incensed against those who, with evil intention and obstinacy, try to despoil her and debase her in this point, while her Most Holy Son was deigned to show her to the world, thus adorned and beautified for this glory, and for the encouragement of the mortals, the evangelist proceeds. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold the tabernacle of God with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself with them shall be their God. The voice of the Mosiah is great and strong, sweet and efficacious, to move and draw toward him all creation. Such was the voice which St. John heard proceeding from the throne of the most blessed Trinity, and which caused him to pay perfect attention, in order to understand thoroughly the mystery which was then shown to him. He was privileged to see the dwelling of God among men, and that he lived among them, that he was their God and they his people. All this was contained in the mysterious figure of Most Holy Mary, descending from heaven in the form I have described. Since this divine tabernacle of God had now come to the earth, it followed that God also dwelt among men, for he lived and remained in this tabernacle. It is as if the evangelist had said, the king has taken possession and is holding his court in the world, and for no other reason than he might remain and dwell on earth, and in such manner that from this tabernacle he was to assume the human form in which he was to be a dweller among men. In it he was to be their God and they his people as the inheritance of the Father, and also for his mother. We were the inheritance of the Father to his Son, not only because in him were all things created and because all was given to him through the eternal generation, but also because he redeemed us as man, clothed in our human nature, buying us as his people, and as the inheritance of the Father and making us his brethren. For the same reason, namely on account of his human nature, we are the legitimate inheritance of Mary Most Holy, since she gave him the form of human flesh by which he purchased for us himself. She, being the mother and the spouse of the Blessed Trinity, 
was also the mistress of all creation, which she left as an inheritance of her only begotten. For the human laws are found on right reason, and therefore need not be invalid in the divine order of things. This voice proceeded from the royal throne through an angel, who, with a sort of holy envy, seemed to me to say to the evangelist, Behold and see the tabernacle of God among men, and he shall live with them, and they shall be his people. He will be their brother, and he will assume human form in this tabernacle Mary, whom thou seest descending from heaven by her conception and formation. But we can answer with equal joy to these heavenly courtiers. Indeed, the tabernacle of God is with us, for it is our tabernacle, and in it God becomes our own. He will receive from it life and blood which he offers and purchased for us in order to make us his people. He shall live in us as his dwelling and habitation, since receiving him in the holy sacrament we are made as tabernacle. John 6.57 Let those heavenly spirits be content to be our elder brothers, less in need that we are the frail little ones. We must be strengthened and regaled by our father and brother. Let him come to the tabernacle of his mother and to us. Let him assume human form in her virginal womb. Let the divinity be encompassed and live among us and in us. Let us hold him in our midst, in order that he may be our God and we his people in his resting place. Let the angelic spirits break forth in wonder and praise at such great marvels. But let us mortals enjoy him, uniting with them in praise and love toward him. The text continues, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Nor crying, nor mourning, nor sorrow shall be any more, for the former things are passed away. In consequence of the redemption of which the conception of Most Holy Mary has assured us, the tears which sin has caused to flow from the eyes of the mortals shall be dried. Those that avail themselves of the mercy of the Most High, of the blood and merits of His Son, of His mysteries and sacraments, of the treasures of the Church, of the intercession of His Mother, there is no more death, no sorrow, no tears, since the death of sin and all that resulted from sin is abolished and has ceased. The true mourning is now left to the sons of perdition that dwell in the abyss, whence there is no deliverance. The sorrows of labor are not a mourning, not a true sorrow, but only an apparent one entirely compatible with the true and the highest kind of joy. For when accepted with submission, it is of inestimable value, and the Son of God chose it as a loving pledge for himself, his mother, and his brethren. Nor will there be heard any clamor, nor the voice of quarrel, for the just and the wise, following the example of their master and of his most humble mother, must learn to bear themselves with silence, like the artless lamb, when it is slaughtered as a victim of the sacrifice. Isaiah 53, 7. They must renounce the right of our weak nature to vent itself in cries and to complain, seeing that His Majesty, their supreme Lord and model, was slaughtered on the frightful cross in order to repair the damages wrought by our impatience and want of confidence. Why should our human nature be permitted to complain of labor and trouble in view of such an example? Or how can hateful distinction and uncharitable sentiments be allowed among men when Christ has come to establish the law of eternal charity? The evangelist repeats, And sorrow shall be no more. For if any sorrows remained among men, they are those of a bad conscience. But as a remedy of this kind of sorrow, there is the sweet medicine of the incarnation of the Word in the womb of the Most Holy Mary, so that now this sorrow is become acceptable, and the cause of rejoicing not any more meriting the name of sorrow, 
and containing within itself the highest and the sincerest joy. With its introduction, the first things have passed away, namely the sorrows and the useless hardships of the ancient laws, which are now sweetened and assuaged by the abundance of grace in the new law. Therefore, he adds, and behold, I make all things new. This voice proceeded from the one who is seated on the throne because he declares himself as the artificer of the mysteries of the new law of the gospel. Since all the newness was to begin with such an unheard of and such an inconceivable event as the incarnation of the only begotten of the Father and the preservation of the virginity of his mother, it was necessary that just as in all things, so in this mother there should be nothing old and worn out, but original sin clearly is as old as visible nature. And if the mother of the incarnate word was to be infected with it, he would not have made all things new. This concludes our reading today for day 32 from the mystical city of God. We have been reading from book one, chapter 17, paragraphs 252 to 257. One of the things I'd like to mention first is that sometimes in Maria Vagrata's writing, she is quoting from scripture or maybe wants to draw our attention to it. And so you'll hear me say that sometimes. Like I'll say John chapter 6, we heard that because she was talking about the tabernacle, being a tabernacle, having received the Lord in Holy Communion. And well, the basis of that is our belief in the Eucharistic presence in John chapter 6. And similarly, I also said today, Canticle 6-9. And just for a point of clarification, Canticle, uh, that would be the Song of Songs. If you haven't read the Song of Songs, it's this beautiful love poem. And in fact, there are lots of references that we could read in there to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And that's why we're quoting it. She quotes it 6-8 and 6-9. If you've not read the Song of Songs, I'd encourage you to go read it and to see this beautiful love poem that also is really God's love poem for us and us for God. One of my favorite writers and preachers, a saint of many, many years ago, back from the 12th century, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, he wrote four volumes reflecting on the Song of Songs. It was one of his favorite Bible passages. So it is a book of scripture. It doesn't get a lot of attention, but then some people give it a lot of attention. I also know that there was another maybe church father, St. Gregory of Nyssa, if I'm not mistaken. So don't quote me on this, but he also has a beautiful reflection on the Song of Songs. Today in our reading, I was very moved by the very first part of it, when all of these questions were being asked. Would he reserve any of his jewels in his treasury? Would he withhold any grace that could beautify and make her precious? Would he permit her to be deformed? Would he be sparing regarding with his mother and spouse? All of these questions, thinking about how God thought about Mary. And as she asked these questions, we know, well, God wouldn't withhold anything from the Blessed Mother. If she is without sin, well, he can't withhold this goodness from her. And that's what we hear as we continued to make our way through the reading today. She also said, 
It is verily time that the honor due to our great queen should be unveiled and made clear to human insight, and that whoever was misled by human opinion should hesitate and cease to belittle and deny her the endowments of her immaculate purity at the instant of her heavenly conception. So, again, we have this idea of the differing opinions, opposite opinions. It could be the camps, the arguing camps about the Immaculate Conception. Now, remember, Maria of Agreda is writing in the 17th century, in the 1600s. It's in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. She says, It is verily time that the honor due to our great queen should be unveiled and made clear to human insight. Well, I'm sure many saints have said that over the ages. It is time now for us to honor the Mother of God. And maybe Maria of Agreda is saying there was a neglect of time right now where Mary hasn't been honored, but now she's dictating this mystical biography to me, giving me these insights. This is the time for all of us to honor Mary. I think Our Lady of Fatima, that was a time in which Mary came and said, this is the time to have God honored, especially as you ask me through the Holy Rosary to pray for you. And so even now today, this is the right time for us to seek devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then there's another line here today. Not excluding even that of her being the mother of God, all depend upon having their origin, and are founded upon the fact that she was immaculate and full of grace in the moment of her most pure conception. Mary's motherhood depends on her immaculate conception, her perpetual virginity. Everything that we know about the Blessed Virgin Mary depends upon this foundational teaching that we've been talking about and reading about here in this, in this volume about Mary's conception. That even though it was a dogma of the church that wasn't declared until 1854, that it is the grounding and the foundation of everything else, even Mary's assumption into heaven. Well, that is because she is assumed body and soul because of the Immaculate Conception, because of what God did and accomplished in the person of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then we hear this. Those that avail themselves of the mercy of the Most High, of the blood and merits of his Son, of his mysteries and sacraments, of the treasures of his church, of the intercession of his mother, there is no more death, no sorrow, no tears, since the death of sin and all that resulted from sin is abolished and has ceased. That's the great gift that we have in our Catholic faith. This is the gift that we have, that we know that there is no more death. That because Jesus rose from the dead, he promises us eternal life. The evangelist repeats, And sorrow shall be no more. For if any sorrows remained among men, they are those of a bad conscience. But as a remedy of this kind of sorrow, there is sweet medicine in the incarnation of the Word, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Well, the sweet medicine is Jesus, because he goes on to forgive in his public ministry, and he's given us the church to take away sin to absolve sin through the sacrament of reconciliation. God has accomplished so much because he chose Mary to be his mother and to be chosen for such a special role in salvation history. We continue to discover what God did for her beforehand from the very moment of her conception. I'm Father Edward Looney. 
and you have been listening to the Mystical City of God in a Year podcast. I'm very honored that you continue to tune in day after day, and I hope that you'll join me again tomorrow. May God bless you today, and Mary pray for you.